Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. Late January, this rolls out in China, and our business immediately drops by 90 to 95% in China. The virus pops in South Korea, Iran, and Italy, and it becomes fairly clear that it's going to spread around the globe. By the middle of March, we're running down 90 to 95% all around the world. We would expect that it's probably a good two, three, four years before hotels get back to the level of performance they had in 2019. Having said that, I do think that we will see people get back on the road. We are itching to get back towards where we were before. There's no substitute for being together. And I think as we can do that safely, we'll step back and do most of what we did before. Well, I don't know when I'll get back to 225 nights a year. I am eager to get back on the road and start traveling again. It's only when we're together that we really do the most collaborative and creative things. As a globe, as a country, as communities, we've gotten through enormously difficult times. And there's no reason we can't get through this one. That's Arnie Sorensen, CEO of Marriott International. Hotels have been among the hardest hit businesses in the pandemic. And despite some recovery, the road ahead is uncertain. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Arnie because no one has a better view of the global and national repercussions of COVID-19. He talks about the financial struggles and the human struggles, from small businesses to big cities. He also talks about personally wrestling with cancer as well as wrestling with racial injustice, and he offers his own formula for how businesses might approach social action. Arnie believes that if businesses band together, they can have an important voice. But he also argues that business leaders shouldn't necessarily speak on every issue. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news, that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. 
You've made a pivotal decision, and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Arnie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott International. Arnie is joining us from his home in Maryland as I ask my questions from my home in New York. Arnie, thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you, Bob. Good to see you. So I hope it's okay if I start with something personal. When 2020 began, you were in the midst of cancer treatment, recovering from surgery, an uncertain, very high stakes moment. And then COVID-19 begins to roll through. That's a lot to manage. How are you feeling these days? Yeah, it has been quite a year, that's for sure. The only good thing about it is that my work, obviously intensified by COVID-19, was a useful distraction from being consumed by a personal cancer battle. Thankfully, the cancer battle has gone reasonably well. So I am feeling good. I've got my hair back, which your audience won't be able to see, of course. But, you know, I feel good and I'm through all scheduled treatments. I can attest. He looks great. You used to travel, I don't know, 200, 250 days a year between the cancer and COVID. You can't do that. Your work patterns have got to be radically different. How has that changed things? It's been interesting. I never really counted the number of nights I was on the road before. I was giving a speech in one of the universities in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago. And I got up there to give the speech and somebody introducing me said he spent 225 nights on the road the year before, which was news to me. (laughs) I've always loved to travel. I'm obviously working in the travel industry, but I think it's important to travel. I've always gotten energy from getting out and seeing the world and understanding the places that we do business in, obviously because of cancer first, but then COVID-19 even more significantly We have been stuck in a place for the last six or seven months. It causes new routines, and some of that is positive. I have a great relationship with my wife and my kids, and I see them much more now than I have in years past. But I sure miss seeing our team around the world, and I miss getting out there and collecting the kinds of experiences we all collect when we travel. So while I don't know when I'll get back to 225 nights a year, I am eager to get back on the road and start traveling again. So your health is much better than it was at the start of the year. How is the health of Marriott's business? Well, we're making progress too. And, you know, I can maybe give you a quick scene setting. Late January, this rolls out in China. And our business immediately drops by 90 to 95% in China. We get to the middle of March and we see it spread around the world. In late April, there's a horrible weekend where the virus pops in South Korea, Iran, and Italy, all in the same weekend. And it becomes fairly clear that it's going to spread around the globe. By the middle of March, we're running down 90 to 95% all around the world. That is the functional disappearance of our business. By today, I think we're probably running down 60 to 65%. Those would be the numbers in the United States. Our occupancy has gone from 10% to about 40% as we speak. 
if you do the percentages in that, it looks spectacular from the bottom. It's still down 60% from last year. So it's a historically difficult time that continues. But what we're seeing is that collectively, we are showing our resilience around the world. It's not that we are used to the virus exactly, but we are learning to live with it. Now, I know you have a bunch of new health protocols you put in place across the hotel, social distancing and mask wearing and more cleaning and temperature checks for employees. How safe is staying at the hotel? Like, do we know what's rational fear versus what's about confidence? Is there clear data about those things? Well, one of the challenges we've got is we've got less contact tracing data than we'd like to have. That's a comment certainly about the United States. I think it's a comment in many respects about other parts of the world. You can't expect me to be unbiased in this as a hotelier, but I don't think hotels are particularly unsafe. The safest place, of course, for all of us to be is in an environment in which nobody else is ever entering that environment. And when you step out of that, there is some incremental risk. But in a hotel, by and large, the guest room is your preserve. So you can get to a hotel and you can essentially put yourself in that environment and be pretty safe. Now, as you start to step out, if there's a restaurant open or if there's a bar open or if there's public space in the hotel, and if the hotel's full, you can obviously put yourself out there more aggressively I think one of the good things about a hotel is each of us can set our risk level, if you will, and decide, you know what, I'm simply going to stay in my room. Or if I'm a little bit bolder, maybe I'm going to go and I'm going to sit on the beach or I'm going to sit by the pool and do other things that need to get done. It, we believe, is much safer than many other public settings because you've got that ability to control your own interaction with it. What kind of occupancy do hotels need to stay cash flow neutral. I know you raised $4 billion of capital liquidity earlier in the year, but what does that percentage have to get to before the business starts to be trending in a sustainable direction? Yeah, it's a really good question. And let me just remind your audience, we don't own our hotels. Our business is essentially managing and franchising hotels under our brands, running a reservations platform, running a loyalty program. So we deliver customers to those hotels. But the hotels are owned by real estate investors all around the world. They tend to be local. So the American hotels owned by US investors, Chinese hotels owned by Chinese investors, et cetera. And each of them is going through a very careful consideration of your question, which is how much business do I need in order to make sure that I am covering the bills? What do I need beyond that to cover a mortgage that has to be serviced or to cover property taxes or other things? And it will vary a little bit based on the part of the world, but broadly 35 to 45% occupancy is probably necessary to cover operating costs. It's higher in hotels where the service levels are higher because you've got that many more operating costs. But as I mentioned before, we've got about 40% occupancy running today. So on average, we're getting close to break even before taxes and debt service. That still means many need incremental cash flow in order to service their debt. Yeah. And the new protocols cost more money for them to maintain. Also, are there things you can do to help those individual or groups of hotels financially get through this? They may not be in the position to raise the kind of capital 
for liquidity that you guys can? Well, some of them are big institutional real estate owners, and they've gone through very much a similar sort of process, which is sometimes borrowing more money. In various countries around the world, there's been government support. PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program in the United States, has been tapped by many of our franchisees. Similarly, we provide services, obviously, to these hotels, and we immediately put 70% of our people on furlough when the crisis hit in March so that we were reducing the cost that these hotels significantly pay for. Of course, we were reducing our costs as well because of the pressure that was on Marriott International itself. And we have been bringing people back to full-time work just in the last few weeks. But we are a smaller company than we were before. And the services we provide to the hotels are much more cost-effective than they were before because they have to be in order to make sure these owners survive. What's the hardest decisions you've had to make during this time? By far, the hardest decision is about our people. We estimated before the pandemic, we had about 750,000 people that wore a name badge every day around the world. 750,000 people. It's a big community of folks. At Marriott, we've been around for 93 years. We have said for most of those 93 years, we can't serve our guests except through our people. And therefore, our people have got to come first. We've got to connect with them. We've got to build careers for them. We've got to empower them. And to have the business disappear in a way that impacts not just one, but tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of our people is a really sobering thing. Part of my role throughout this crisis has been to communicate with them about what we're seeing, about what the consequences are to them and to us. And often that is not having the benefit of answers because we don't really know what the answers are. It's a new experience for all of us. All we can really do is be transparent with them and try and explain the decisions that we're making so that they understand what's behind the screen, if you will. And that's been extraordinarily difficult. This is the time of year usually when business travel really kicks into high gear and there's not a lot of that happening. Virtual meetings may change business travel permanently. Do you have a theory about what that is going to mean for the way your business looks down the road? Well, we will obviously not count on business returning until it does return. We'll build our business back as demand justifies. And as a consequence, we would expect that it's probably a good two, three, four years maybe before hotels get back to the level of performance they had in 2019. Not all hotels are identical, obviously. Some will come back quicker than others. The more they're dependent on group or the more they're dependent on international travel, probably the slower they will be to come back. Having said that, I do think that we will see people get back on the road and listening to not just business leaders, but my adult kids who are working remotely, their peers, friends, you know, talking to all the folks we Zoom with or Teams with or get on the telephone with. I think collectively we are itching to get back at least some measure of the way towards where we were before. Let me get back on the road a little bit. Let me get out of my house a little bit. Let me meet with some others a little bit because there's no substitute for being together. And I think as we can do that safely, we'll step back and do most of what we did before. You've got some strong feelings, I know, about remote work versus face-to-face. I understand you got kind of worked up when Google announced that they'd allow remote work through 2021. Why do you feel so strongly about it? 
Well, for lots of reasons, I blogged about this advice that I often give to young people starting their careers, which is summarized by just say yes. Early in your careers, opportunities are going to come from places you don't anticipate. And you may find somebody who suddenly says, you know what, Bob, I want you to run a huge radio program. And you may not have even thought about doing that before, but that person is giving you an opportunity that could be very unique. And the likelihood is the right answer is just say yes. Well, if you're not present to hear about that opportunity, that opportunity may never arise. It's going to be particularly important early in your career or at transition points in your career. It is similarly important when you're thinking about not just solving the task which is before you, which we can do remotely fairly easily, but trying to figure out what tasks are the most important for us to get at. What are the questions we have to answer? And the more that is the challenge, and it's going to be the challenge regularly, the more important it is to be together. Because it's only when we're together that we really do the most collaborative and creative things. I think the third thing I'd put on the list is our cities are under enormous pressure today. And they're under pressure because we've got small businesses all around the places where we go to work. And when we're not going to work, they don't have a reason for being. Whether it's a dry cleaners or a parking garage or a florist shop or a clothing store, they're closed. And they're not coming back until we step back out of our houses and go back. And our economy won't come back the way it should unless those businesses are reopening again. So all of these things to me pile on together and say, we don't want to be unwise. We don't want to be taking risks that we shouldn't be taking. We should pay attention to what the risks of the virus are. But we can go back to the offices safely with reduced density, with social distancing, with mask wearing, and we can start to build our careers again and we can start to build the economy again. There are folks who have digital-based businesses who feel like, oh, this is just an acceleration of a trend. In some ways, all those stores were going to go away anyway, eventually, because you were going to interact with everyone digitally. It sounds like you don't really buy that argument. I think it would be a very sad world to live in that didn't have restaurants on the street for us to walk to or drive to or get together with our friends at. I'm not for a second suggesting that digital transformation is going to stop. It won't. It's going to continue. And the tools that we're using now during the pandemic are very powerful tools that will continue to be used. But they should create incremental economic opportunities for us not just put a death knell in what we used to do in the past. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just, like, share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was, like, sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible. And we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. 
you write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. There's been a lot of discussion this year about the propriety and at times the peril of political and social statements by businesses. What is the role, the responsibility of a business, of a CEO in engaging in social issues? Yeah, this is a place we could spend hours talking about because I think it's evolved dramatically in the last five years. And I think the answers tend to be in shades of gray. It's not crystal clear what is always right or what is always wrong. I think one of the reasons it's evolved so much is that we collectively have less faith in our institutions than we did in the past. And as a consequence, we are looking towards more people to speak for us. I mentioned we thought we had 750,000 people that wore our name badge every day before the pandemic. They are our community, and they are an extraordinarily diverse group of people from all around the world, all identities, who have some cynicism and doubt about whether government speaks for them, but who want to be spoken for. They want to know that their voice is being heard. Increasingly, that community for Marriott and similar communities for other companies or for other institutions say, where's our voice in this? And we expect you to speak out. When there's a killing of George Floyd, we expect your voice to be heard. When there is something that is germane to our community, we want to know that we are there with a voice that is being articulated and representing us. I think there is an obligation to speak out. I don't think it's about every issue. I have spoken out, of course, in the context of the George Floyd killing and the racial inequities that we've been wrestling with again, being reminded that we never stopped wrestling with in the way the events happened this summer. But there are other issues that I haven't spoken out about. I have personal views about choice issues, as an example. I haven't spoken out about those because it's not particularly germane to Marriott's business. It is germane to many members of our community, but it is not really relevant to the jobs that they have with us. And so there are some issues that I think it's fundamental to speak out on, and there are some that I think it is probably not germane. And sometimes there are business issues that become political, even if you didn't expect them to. We obviously welcome many, many, many people into our hotels all the time. They have very different political points of view, and many times they're meeting in our hotels. And so it is a very regular occurrence for us to hear from one side or the other saying, how on earth could you have let that group meet in your hotel? Mm. And we're going to boycott you unless you basically kick them out of the hotel. Ultimately, our view there is we're not going to sit in judgment on what group A or group B believes. Nobody, I think, really wants us to do that. Do people really want me individually as the CEO of Marriott to say that group's okay because I've approved their point of view and that group's not okay because I haven't? And the best decision we can make is generally everybody's welcome to our hotels no matter what they think. And so 
just to push you a little bit more on this, if an anti-vaccine group wanted to have a meeting at your hotel or a Holocaust denier group, are all those allowed to? We can go a long way here with an individual hypothetical. If it's illegal or if there's a safety risk because of violence, those are two particular things that we're going to be mindful of. But if, say, President Trump and a delegation is staying in one of our hotels or Vice President Biden and a bunch of his folks are staying in one of our hotels, does anybody expect us to exclude them, even though there are many who believe the other should definitely not be elected, right? How could you possibly support them? And I think the answer has got to be that we've got enough regard for a divergence of opinion that we cannot be afraid of those that have opinions that are different than ours. We cannot be afraid of them getting together with folks who are like-minded with them. And again, as long as it doesn't promote violence or safety issues or legality, we're not going to sit back and say, okay, now you are just over the line here and we're not going to let you come in. You mentioned George Floyd's killing, and I know you posted right after that that you wanted to use your perch at Marriott to advance opportunity for all. I just want to ask how that has manifested itself since then. Marriott has for years worked on a diversity and inclusion agenda. Our board is more than half diverse if you include gender and race. Our senior management ranks top seven or 800 people is roughly half diverse if you include gender and race. And those are good statistics. But I think what we were reminded of this year is, is it good enough? And the answer is no, it's not good enough. We've got to make sure we continue to move. But are we making sure that healthcare is available across the entire community? Are we making sure the effectiveness of that healthcare is comparable? Are we understanding the social and economic challenges that our folks are wrestling with? Are we using our procurement leverage to make sure that we are helping an inclusive world? Then we've got to make sure that we are using our voice with other voices in the community. So with the Business Roundtable, I'm on their executive committee and chair their Healthcare Inequities Task Force, which was set up in the wake of George Floyd's killing. We're really looking at what are the things that we can do from a policy perspective, because Marriott alone can't solve these, or a single institution can't solve them. But if we band together, we can have a voice which is that much more audible and should be able to cause some change. It is an incredibly complicated and unsettling time between the political situation, the social situation, the health and the COVID and the economic situation. There's a lot of challenges in managing all that when you're dealing with your team. How do you manage the practical versus the sort of psychological and emotional challenges that your team is struggling with? I don't know that I've got a real crisp answer to that. I mean, uh, communications and transparency both are, to me, tools that we must use. And we must use them with all of our constituencies to make sure that we are explaining what we're doing, that we're listening to what their concerns are, that we are being transparent with the kinds of priorities that we're setting in order to not get too depressed and to be effective, we've got to make sure we understand 
what we can influence and what we can't. That doesn't mean the things we can't influence we should not care about. And there'll be times when we can influence things and times when we can't. So my team at Marriott of a dozen or so, I'm talking to them individually every week, certainly, if not more frequently than that, we are focused on the things that we can impact most frequently. Has your experience battling cancer provided perspective in this time or impatience about that other things don't happen faster, a little of both? That's a good question. Patience is not one of my virtues. At the same time, I think it's a lifelong lesson for me to continue to delegate and rely on others. And I say lifelong, this is not about the last two years battling cancer and COVID-19, but it is about recognizing that the bigger the institution, of course, the more fundamental this is, you can't touch everything. And the more you expect the opportunity to touch everything, the more the organization is going to freeze up. And because you can't touch everything, you've got to empower people to know that they've got the right to make a decision. You've got to get comfortable with the fact that the decision might be wrong. And we're much better forgiving our own decisions if they're wrong than forgiving somebody else's decision if they're wrong. But it's equally important that we allow those decisions to be made and we learn from them. I think if anything, the cancer battle in COVID-19 has been a fresh reminder of the importance of that because there's so much that has to get done. And there is less time and maybe less stamina in order to do that. And so you got to rely on that team. You got to rely on those folks who are willing to step up and say, I got this. We're going to get this done. What's at stake in this moment? How do we come out of this with as much strength and momentum as we possibly can? Not just how do we survive. We're going to survive. Human resiliency is such that we will survive as people and overwhelmingly, even if we've lost our jobs or we're wrestling with health aspects of COVID-19, we will get through it. And people have proven that through history over and over again. But how do we collectively move so that the economy is as strong as it can be, so that individuals, they suffer no more than they need to, so that we can come out of this as individuals, as companies, as society, with as much momentum as we possibly can so that we can be on the other side with employment, with the wherewithal to live our lives. And not to sound too corny, but to be able to get back to a place where we can get joy in our lives and joy from each other because we're not worried about the most fundamental things. At least we're not worried about it all day long, every day. And if we play our cards right, I think we can do that. With all the uncertainty and the challenges, you still seem optimistic. I am optimistic. I am probably by personality, I suppose, in some respects, but I'm an avid reader of history and of fiction. Both the history is obvious that you learn from the past. I think fiction is less obvious, but we learn from the portrayals that authors give us of people. I think both of those things tell us that We've gotten through as a globe, as a country, as communities, we've gotten through enormously difficult times. And there's no reason we can't get through this one. 
Well, thank you. Thanks for making the time. We really, really appreciate it. Bob, this has been great. It's really been an enjoyable conversation. And thank you for all that you're doing with Masters of Scale. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing, and the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans, and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates, so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large, and Masters of Scale host, Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producer is Jordan McLeod. Scripts by Christina Gonzalez. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday and Daniel Nissenbaum. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson and Lena Sillison. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Adam Heiner, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter. Mm-hmm.